The reading this morning is taken from 2 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. And you'll find that on page 1189 of the Pew Bibles. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may fulfil every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. Thank you, Margaret. Ursula's going to come and preach now, and we'll pray for her as she does so. Father, do thank you for the words that you've given Ursula to to bring to us this morning. I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to hear and listen and to respond, Lord. I pray for Ursula now as she preaches. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Has anyone been to Thessaloniki? (laughs) Andrew has. (laughs) It's on my bucket list of places where I'd like to go. Um, along with Antarctica and South America and Iraq when it's not so troubled. (laughs) It's a city that dates from 300 BC um, and it was the second largest and wealthiest city of the Byzantine Empire and of course it's still there today for us to go on holiday to. And the letters to the Thessalonians were written by Paul and they're amongst the earliest of the New Testament books, and they were probably written as early as only 20 years after Jesus was crucified. 
and we read in Acts 17 of his visit there and how he preached in the synagogue. But the letters are written by Paul in Corinth and he was responding to reports by Timothy about the fledgling church in Thessaloniki. I can't say it either, Margaret. <laughs> and the persecutions that it was experiencing and to counteract claims by some that Jesus had already returned. And Paul's response to their doubts and fears was typical of him. He gave thanks for them, despite their situation. And in the few opening sentences of the chapter that Margaret read to us, he picks out three attributes and attitudes which mark them as a vibrant, growing church. They had a faith which was strong. They had a love which was increasing and they persevered and they had a faith which endured in spite of troubles. The word Paul uses here is usually translated as endurance but it does not mean the ability to bear passively like a doormat, anything that might descend on us. Its meaning is that we not only endure the circumstances that we find ourselves in, but that we also master them. We accept the blows of life, but in accepting them, transform them into stepping stones to new achievement. And avoiding any note of pity, instead he compliments them for their steadfastness in the midst of these persecutions and sufferings a steadfastness that has become a matter for his boasting about them amongst other churches he visits. Sometimes we can look at the atrocities and persecutions happening in our world today and think, my problems and troubles and pain are minimal compared to theirs. But the pain and suffering we experience in our lives even though they are of a very different order to those that we hear about in other parts of our world, are still very real to us and can sometimes feel as if they can threaten to consume us. Paul here doesn't diminish their suffering, but neither does he define them by their suffering. What defined them was this, that they were and are being made worthy walking in faith, seeing the outworking of their lives of faith and prayer. Listen to how he prays in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. To this end also we pray for you, and we pray always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfil every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many ways that we pray, aren't there? there? We pray liturgically, we pray for healing, we pray for deliverance, we have times of intercession, and I'm sure there are others as well that you can think of. But at the heart of prayer, for me, whatever form that they take, is that prayer is learning to think God's thoughts. It's learning to desire God's desires. It's learning to love what he loves and hate 
what he hates. It's learning to affirm those things that are close to the heart of God. And as our prayer life deepens, it takes on more of these characteristics, doesn't it? It draws us into a deeper connection with God. It lifts us up towards him. We keep company with him. We learn to listen rather than talk. And our reading of his word takes on a new vibrancy and trawls newfound depths. Paul encourages the church to pray constantly. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, and in verse 11 of our text today, he tells them and us that he prays constantly. What does this mean, to pray constantly? We know that Paul didn't live the life of a hermit or a recluse, so how in the face of teaching, preaching, writing, sleeping, working, exhorting, discipling, traveling, suffering, and everything else that life brings, could he be praying constantly? Could it be that whatever occupied him, he had a deeper awareness within, an awareness of unceasing communion with the living God? And of course, prayer meetings and quiet times and intercessions and all those other expressed ways in which we pray are good and necessary. But if that's all there is, then we're missing out. We're missing out on that deeper level of comprehension and relationship that is an unceasing communion with the living God. As Spurgeon so eloquently puts it, if you want that splendid power in prayer, you must remain in loving, living, lasting, conscious, practical, abiding union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we read through Paul's letters, it's a theme that comes up over and over again of being in constant communion with the living God. Our growth as prayerful Christians is marked by these two things. It's marked by an unceasing prayer life that goes on at a deep level beneath the surface of normal life. And it's marked by prayer that first seeks to know the mind and the heart and the will of God. So what does Paul pray for? In verse 11, uh, he says... With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of your calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition, he may fulfill your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. That our God may count you worthy of your calling. In other words, that God will enable us to deserve the name we bear. He will shape our character, not as a distant God, but as our God not one who cannot be touched by our infirmity and frailty and troubles, but one who, through Christ, has demonstrated that he is a tender and a caring God, our God, with whom and in whom we are intimately connected and known, and who wants to make us and count us worthy of our calling that time when God called us to a saving knowledge of him, when we were called to Christ by God, when we were drawn to salvation. 
Paul here is repeating an earlier text in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, where he said, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The calling he refers to is our calling into the kingdom of God. We have been called to God, called to Christ, called to bear the name Christian. We have been called to be identified as God's people and God's children. God made us worthy when we were unworthy, and he did it by and through grace. We didn't earn it, and we can't do anything worthy enough to earn it. And we can't do anything worthy enough to keep it. But God gives us a worthiness that is in Christ. When he declares us righteous, it's because he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So what marks a worthy life? How are we to walk? Well, it's a life which pleases God in all respects. It's a life which bears fruit in every good work, increases in knowledge, strengthened with power, a life which is thankful. As Paul says in verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 2, walk devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly. The theme runs through his writings, doesn't it? Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And on the day when we meet Jesus face to face, we will be welcomed. There'll be no condemnation. Instead, we will be counted as worthy. The next part of Paul's prayer says that our God may fulfill every desire for goodness and your every desire prompted by faith. The word there that's translated as fulfill means to accomplish. In other words, Paul is praying, God, please accomplish in their lives everything they desire when what they desire is good by your definition. Paul understands that salvation by grace is through faith alone, but he also understands that salvation by grace through faith alone produces works. Ephesians 2, reading from the message version, says, Now God has us where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next, to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, We neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. So our saving faith is going to produce works. Our living faith will produce works of faith, will prompt us to serve Christ, 
to reach out to others, to look beyond ourselves. This is how Jesus is praised in us, when someone looks at us and sees something different, when people notice his work and power in us. And as we read in verse 12, where it says, in order that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that the purpose of this isn't for us. It's that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified. Our Lord, Jesus Christ. There's an intimacy and a majesty in that phrase, the name of our Lord. The name of the Lord in the Old Testament, in passages such as Genesis 4, 26, and Isaiah 56, 6, and many other examples, is a title for God. And it says here in Thessalonians, the name of our Lord Jesus. Paul here is identifying Jesus as the Old Testament God, the God of the Old Testament that the Jewish Christians would have known. But he's saying even more than that. When he uses the word name in that context, it means all that Jesus is. He's praying that all that Jesus is might be glorified in us. And it's all through grace. Everything that comes to us as Christians is by grace. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. As Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works so no one can boast. This is what James is referring to in chapter 2 of his letter to the Jewish Christians, where he discusses faith and works. And from the passage from Ephesians, we learn that as we pray, learn to understand the heart of God, say, God, I simply want your desires, that we walk in a faith that is not created by works, but rather recognize that we walk in a faith that produces good works along the way. And on that final day when Jesus returns, we will be rejoicing in him because in Jesus and in him alone we find our worth. And as we wait, we wait as those who are counted as worthy. Our trust is in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, nor in good works. We live underpinned and surrounded by God's grace. We live in an ocean of grace. And we live lives of prayer, walking in faith, bearing good fruit. And so finally, as we stand as a community of believers on the threshold of our next, of the next stage of our journey, let's listen again to that prayer of Paul but this time for us here at Christ Church. I'll read it from the message version. Because we know that this extraordinary day is just ahead, we pray for you, Christ Church, at all times. Pray that our God will make you fit for what he's called you to be. 
Pray that he'll fill your good ideas and acts of faith with his own energy so that it all amounts to something. If your life honours the name of Jesus, he will honour you. Grace is behind and through all of this. Our God, giving himself freely. The Master, Jesus Christ, giving himself freely. Amen.